Bet365 sponsors our podcast and features over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you'll ever need to bet on sport. Did you know you can create personalised bets with Bet365? Bet365 Bet Builder lets you calculate the odds for any game. It's right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Good afternoon, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined this week by our regular guests. It's The Athletic writers James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Happy to be here. And our special guest this week, one of the Arsenal striking legends. And he's sitting here in the studio with us. It's Mr. Kevin Campbell. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Thank you very, very much for joining us. We do. We have um, met in the past, I was saying... That I uh, we ran into each other on a train. There was a moment because I didn't know whether you knew who I was, yeah. and we were chatting, and you went, "The thing is, Ian," and I thought he said Ian. <laughs> I was so excited, and of course, you met Amy in a, what I believe was a drinking contest in Dover Street a year, years ago. Now, yeah, it was, and uh, we had a little talk about it before. Yeah, do you want I, me to gloss when over? I, when this? I say drinking contest, it wasn't much of a contest. Right, uh, I, I wasn't keeping up very very well. It, interesting enough. I'm not totally surprised, bearing in mind the relative frames of the people I'm looking at at the moment. Uh, Anyway, it's nice to have you guys uh, here. Uh, We are going to talk about uh, a little bit about yesterday's Arsenal-Burnley game, but mainly about striking and... Uh, the issues that we have. Before we do that, uh, we were thinking about superstitions and pre-match rituals. Uh, Kevin, did you have a pre-match ritual? Um, Not really. Uh, I think what tended to happen was because at the time you're winning games, you tend to try and do the same thing. But it's not as if it's a superstition. So for the warm-up, it was always me and Lee Dixon used to go out for the warm-up first before anybody else. So that's what we used to do. That was your little ritual. That was our little ritual to try and keep um, the win going. But as I say, it wasn't a superstition, just a ritual. Does, right. it, does everyone know that? So, like, if one of the other members of the team suddenly fancies going out a bit early, <laughs> no, would it won't. be like... Trust me, they, <laughs> don't, they won't. Oh, Amy, what have you got? Do, do you have uh, superstitions? Well, I'm I've, guessing it's a yes. I've had many a superstition yeah. uh, over the years, but funnily enough, Kevin being here reminded me of one. Um, in what must have been 1992, uh, I went um, at New, uh, New Year's away to Lisbon with my then-boyfriend at the time, who happened to be a chef for Wednesday fan, more of that later and uh, he bought me a very nice sort of thing of beads and I came back and wore these beads to the FA Cup third round game uh, that season we then went on to win not just the FA Cup but the League Cup and I dutifully wore these beads to every cup game. And actually, there was a point at which I thought, I must be careful about the power of these beads because I mustn't waste them on a league game or something. You know, they're obviously only going to work in the cup. So then having... <laughs> Sorry. What? And of course, after we beat Sheffield Wednesday in both those cup finals, which was, you know, a coincidence. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, I then thought, OK, the natural progression for the beads is the cup and his cup. Of course. No longer going to use them in, you know... They, 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 they kind of get promoted. They're travelling. So they went to all these Cup Winners' Cup games. I went to Odense, Standard Liège, Torino, and then the home game against Paris Saint-Germain, semi-final. In the celebrations of Kevin Campbell's goal, somebody grabbed at them and they went everywhere in the North Bank, ripped Beads of beads, and everyone by now knew about the powers of my beads. Around <laughs> when you so, say everyone, well, everyone who sat around us, right. so people were frantically searching around in the <laughs> aftermath of the goal celebration for the beads, which I dutifully restrung for the final, and then retired them. Are you retired the beads? Where are they now? We, we they need are, them more than so, ever. They are yeah. somewhere in the back of a drawer, but they only worked at a specific moment in time, I believe. Rub them on uh, Alexandra Lacazette's head or something. <laughs> <laughs> that might help. Uh, James, do you have? Uh, I mean, I wish I could say magic beads. I don't know how you can beat <laughs> magic that. Magic beads. I did have a pair of socks actually that during the unbeaten season in two thousand three, two thousand four. About midway through, I decided that the unbeaten run was very connected to this pair of socks. So I would only wear it when I was going to a game. Like if I was watching on the telly, it didn't count. But if I was there in the flesh and I had to have the socks on, we'd keep the unbeaten run. But to be honest, I think I binned them after the 49th game, after the United defeat. 
I think they were like, well, they're no good, actually. Did you have any idea how nuts football fans were, Kevin? Yeah. I mean, obviously you do. I do, yeah. You've seen them in action. Well, but... I was a fan first. Don't forget. I was Did... a fan first. Yeah. Went to my first game at, uh, at Highbury, 1977. Uh, Arsenal played Middlesbrough, and it finished one each. And I think the same day Spurs got relegated, so it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so what a first, what a first yeah. game. I couldn't afford to get in. I'm not sure you can really top that. That's the no. best punchline to a first game story I've yeah. ever heard. And on the same day Spurs yeah. got, got relegated. relegated. You know, it was amazing. <laughs> and everyone was coming out because the Wiley had the little radios going and it was like a party atmosphere. It was brilliant. I mean, I didn't realise I was sat here with people essentially from the 15th century. <laughs> uh, you know, science is a thing now. Do you know that really works wow. in all we'll sorts see. of ways. We'll see. We used to sit, of course, with Keith Dover, uh, who uh, a friend of ours. He used to have lucky socks. He kept his ticket in his shoe. There were various things. He had a waistcoat he had for a while. <laughs> uh, it, it's possible that none of these things made any difference at all. Because I'd know he wore, I think he wore the waistcoat. I think it was a waistcoat through a, a Champions League run, which ended against Bayern Munich. Oh, wow. And that was the end of that. I think he had it burnt or something. <laughs> anyway, uh, as Kevin Campbell uh, is here this morning, and uh, it's great that you're uh, in the studio with us, we want to talk about Arsenal's striking uh, problems at the moment. This is not just about yesterday's game uh, against Burnley. This has been going on a while. If you're a striker in this situation... I mean, it, obviously you're going to get a lot of the blame for stuff like this because strikers are the ones who are meant to be scoring goals. But do you look further down the pitch for the number of chances created? I think you have to look at everything. You know, I, I don't think the Arsenal strikers get a lot of service mm. right now. And I think there's an imbalance in the personnel. And what, there's times where Pepe plays and Pepe looks really good. And For instance, yesterday, Pepe doesn't play. Martinelli, who's been on form, when Aubameyang was out, he stepped up, which is fine. He could keep his place. But I still think there's a there's a lack of cohesion in in the the front boys, and I I'd still say there's got to be a front too. I still want Aubameyang and Lacazette to dovetail with each other because they've got that connection. We all want that, but it's whether it's gonna gonna happen is another matter. I mean, Amy, we've I mean, I've I'd like to see Aubameyang and Lacazette play together, but. Right now, Lacazette looks completely shot of confidence. Yeah, it's a funny one. I, I, I wrote a piece about this about a month ago, fully expecting him to turn the, the, the corner like any second then. And the more the games go on, um, I'm really starting to feel for him, actually, because he seems to have, you know, all the things that, he do, that, that you do instinctively or you want to do instinctively on the pitch are just not happening quickly um, or, or not happening with composure. And I think it must be so difficult when, you know, he's he's not a young man. He's, he's what, 29, I think now? 28, 29. Exactly. And this is a guy where club football is everything to him. He should be a contender to be in the French national team. And for, you know, one of the reasons Didier Deschamps has his favourites and his not favourites. And he's just not interested in, Lacazette's in the no camp for him. Do you think like, that's whatever. affected him? Well, I don't know, but I mean, I do. What I do think it does is it, it puts an extra impetus on um, on someone's club career. So, therefore, if your club career is not going great, and I think he he's one of the ones who suffered a bit under Unai Emery. Um, there was quite a long period where it felt like <clears throat> whenever there needed to be a change, he would be the He'd first be the one, one to be hooked, yeah. Yeah. or he wouldn't necessarily get the start. And I think it I think it got to him. Um, I don't know how he how you best play your, your way out of trouble. We we had a a good question come through. Um, it, the question was: If you were an out of form striker, Kev, is it better to let that person be out there trying to work their way out of trouble, mm. or, or do you affect their confidence more by taking them out of the team? Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, question. First off, managers like to back players. That's that's definitely a, a key. And I think what Mikel Arteta's doing right now is he's giving Lacazette an opportunity to play to try and get a goal because we all know what his all-round game does and he works hard, etc., etc. But at the end of the day, you're looking at the team ain't winning games and there were times yesterday where I was watching Lacazette and his all-round game fell apart. Yeah. And as a striker, you know, you really do know you know, you're struggling. I'm yeah. struggling at the moment. So I think maybe it might be time, Mikel Arteta, 
takes him out the firing line a little bit. Well, uh, that question was from Lauren Bailey, by the way. Right. Sorry, James, you were going to say. I was just going to say, I think that is his confidence and that's why his all-round game's going. You know, I think he's not scoring the goals and that's affecting him in other ways. I think the trouble for Lacazette as well is when you watch him, he's doing a lot of his work quite far away from the penalty box. And yeah. I think he's a really good penalty box striker. He's got great, you know, quick feet in the in the box. He can get a shot away with very short back lift. But Arteta's asking him to sort of be a bit of a linchpin for the attack, do a lot of the, the hold-up play, the defensive work. And it means he's 40 yards from goal. And he's not a guy who's got the sprinting capacity, like Nketiah did at Bournemouth, to, to be pressing near the halfway line and in the penalty box 10 seconds later. That's not his game. Bobby Robson used to say to Alan Shearer, I want to see the number on your back. I want to see. I want. To, I want you to be facing the goal. Now, obviously, Lacazette, if he's playing that number nine, he's got to be holding the ball up and he's going to be facing the play. But at some point, he's got to get in the box. It, it doesn't seem to affect things in the penalty area. Look, Ian, the key is the key is this. If a manager says he wants to see your number, you've got to have people going on the outside to deliver balls in the box. Yeah. That's the only way he's going to see it. Or else, just by setup alone, you know, he's going to be seeing your chest, the manager, from the sideline. Yeah. So it's either you got frost down the outside. If you got frost down the outside, Lacazette could easily get into the box. But that's where I think Arsenal have been really imbalanced of late because Aubameyang's out there on the left, doesn't really want to be there, but his inroad is running inside. And Martinelli, he's a striker as well who's doing a job out there. So the only one player we've got is probably Pepe, but Pepe's a left sider playing, left footer playing on the right side. He tends to come inside because that's his natural movement to come mm. inside. So we haven't got nobody who goes on the outside of people. The point about the front two, I think, is really interesting because when you look at Aubameyang and Lacazette, they had a really good spell sort of in the second half of last season when Arsenal were playing like a 3-5-2. You remember that game away leg at Valencia where they were playing in tandem. They were pulling through games, they were pulling us through games on their own at times, combining yes. really well. If you look at Lacazette in Lyon, he had a, a partnership there with Nabil Fekir. He's got, you know, he's got a history of flourishing when he's got people close to him. And at the moment, he just doesn't feel really like he's got that. The only guy near him really is Mesut Ozil, and he's underperforming too. Funny you should mention him. I was about to say, are we, are we not talking about the elephant in the room here? But um, just before we, we leave, on, uh, uh, Lacazette, I would say one thing, which is that he is having such a hard time. And you read these terrible statistics, like it's going to be a year since he, he scored away by the time he next sets foot on an <clears throat> away ground. But he was player of the year last year. Mm. There was a reason for that. And let's not forget that, that it wasn't just, you know, he contributed to whatever, 25, nearly 30 goals in terms of goals and assists. And also his, you know, that determination and that work of harassing defenders from the front, he was sort of almost the only one that was doing that last season. And, you know, that's where I think that all these managers are trying to persevere with him, whether it's, you know, Emery to an extent and then Freddie Jungberg and and, uh, he, uh, and now uh, Arteta while he's not scoring so freely because he does have the, you know, qualities that nobody else seems to have in the team. And, and somehow, it, I don't know whether... It's, a, it's an interesting test of Arteta's management to try and bring him round, try and bring him back. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape. And then a personal stylist will send you five items of clothing. Try and everything at home, style with other items in your wardrobes. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk stroke athletic right now. That's stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. Kev, I wanted to ask you about this. If you're a striker going through the sort of run that uh, that Lacazette is going through. I don't know if you ever did go through a run quite as bad as that. I know. I don't think you did. I've been through. I've been through long spells. Yeah, I have. Not maybe not as long, but I've been through long spells. If you are going through a spell like that, would you rather be taken out of the firing line for a while, or would you want to stay on the pitch? Because I thought that Lacazette should have been taken off yesterday after 55, 60 minutes. But maybe Arteta is trying to nurse him through it. But there comes a point when you're not contributing enough. What's your view about that? Like I said before, Ian, I think the, the really important part is the manager wants to persevere with a player who he's picked from the start. He's 
he was player of the season last season for a reason. Mm. He doesn't become a bad player overnight. That's the key. He's be, he's played some good games, but hasn't scored the goal. So you, you that's why a manager would live with it. But when you start seeing his game fall apart, that's when you, a manager has to really be decisive and say, I'm taking you off and put Aubameyang up top and then make another adjustment in, in the team. because so, Solely because his confidence ain't there. That's all. And take him out of the firing line and maybe bringing him off the bench when the team's on top of somebody else. For me, when, when you were going through stuff like that, you wanted to play. Of course you want to play because when you're playing for Arsenal, and this is really important, you, you're a player who doesn't hide. This is really, really important. It's easy to just get pulled out the firing line. You know, you, you, your form's not good. So there you go. You park, park you up on the side. Do you have to be saved from yourself, though, sometimes? No, but remember, it's up to the manager. Because the manager has to be able to assess, right, he's still actually affecting the game. That's the key. If you're still affecting the game and you're still creating assists or you're, you're, you're doing the hold-up work that you need to do and you're winning games, you can survive. But if you're losing and you're not scoring and you're not winning and you're not assisting, then the manager is going to pull you out the firing line or should pull you out the firing line. What, what's the road back like, Kevin, from when you're on a bit of a goal-scoring drought? Is it as simple as you just need to get one in the back of the net? Is it just that? It is, you know, because in, you, you, in training, you score. And you do finishing drills yeah. and all that. And you're scoring goals <laughs> and you think, it just needs, it's going to happen on a Saturday. I know it's going to happen. And then you go one game, two games, three games, four games, and it's not happening. But as a player, as a player's mentality, and the strikers, whether you're liking it or not, you're judged by goals. You are judged by mm. goals. The mentality is, if I'm assisting, great, but I just need one. And if you remember rightly, when a when Aubameyang gave Lacazette the penalty a couple of seasons ago, yes, and there was uproar. You know, Aubameyang could go for the golden boot, but he knew... That's what Lacazette really needed. He needed that boost of just hitting the back of the net and then he started scoring again. So for me, that's all it takes. But it's to get across that line because you practice all the time and it goes in. But just on a Saturday, it just ain't happening. Kev, can I ask you just to, with your striker's hat on to go through Arsenal's attackers and tell us what you think of each of them individually? And we've talked a lot about Lacazette. What about Martinelli? What about Mesut Ozil? What about Aubameyang? What, you know, what about Pepe? What do you think of those guys and what they have to offer and what their challenges might be? I think Aubameyang, without Aubameyang, would have been in big big trouble. We're not utilising him to his best of ability just yet because he's playing on the left uh, and there's more of accommodation for Meza Ozil in a sense. Um, I think Meza Ozil, we all know he's got wonderful gifts, but I just don't see the gifts coming out as much as it should right now. Mm. I've not seen it for quite a while. No. Um, I was, I'm of the ilk that to play um, Aubameyang at the top and Lacazette in Ozil's position because I think because he's doing that kind of doing that now anyway it'll be easier for him and Aubameyang to dovetail if you want to play 40 yards away from goal play in the number 10 slot play yeah. the number 10 bring slot bring in the wide players bring in Aubameyang the wide players can, exactly yeah. Martinelli could play on the left Pepe could play on the right Aubameyang at the top and Lacazette just in behind him that's what I'd do because we know Lacazette will graft harder. Oh my God! You know, you know. Hold Terry's... on, I've not finished. Oh I, no, no, that's great, <laughs> and I want more. But you know, in the Terry's old gold advert, remember that when he used to open the box and it was all shining light. Yes. I just feel like that's happened to me now. When you said that Lacazette that playing in the number moment. ten, yeah. What? Of course. But you guys have thought about this. Right? Well, I, I think Kev's right. He's kind of doing that role anyway. He's playing a sort of nine and a half. You know, he's dropping deep. I think there could be something in that because I agree that Özil's not really contributing enough. He still has some lovely touches there was one pass at Burnley that was beautiful off the outside of his boot but it was 30 yards away from goal to a right back do you know what I mean nothing came of it moving on to Pepe I want to speak about Pepe I think it's been a real difficult start for Pepe mm. at Arsenal but I think under Arteta you're starting to see signs that Pepe's getting it and it's going to take a little bit of time because the intensity you know every game in the premiership is tough and he's realising, you know, you've got to perform week in, week out. And training ain't just easy. Training is to develop you, to make you better. So he has to do the work on the training ground in order to get better. But I think there's huge potential with him. Martinelli, I think, has been 
a shining light for Arsenal this season. A young lad, 18 years old, knew nothing about him when he came in for six million. Great work done in the background to bring him in. Not going to put too much pressure on him right now, but I think he's got that eye for goal that could really make him a a, a star for years to come. Mm. He's quick, he's tenacious. I mean, culminating in that goal at Chelsea. The front half of the team is, you know, should be challenging for the top four and the bottom back half of the team is a struggle um, and getting that balance right has just been an ongoing problem for the best part of a couple of years mm. and I keep looking at the midfield and thinking if the, you know the forwards are not getting enough chances not creating enough chances um, they're not getting those opportunities that there's something in the balance of the team that is wrong and I feel like the midfielders in a way what Arteta has done which is a sensible thing for any new manager to come in when you've got a team that's all over the place giving away daft uh, goals left right and centre confidence completely blown to pieces at their back and his priority has been let's just sort out not giving away stupid goals and giving away games just like that which you do but it feels like the midfield is much more prioritised on helping the defence which is the right thing to do, but at the expense of helping the attack. So they're a bit starved up there. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Kevin, the idea of choosing your best your best team and, and going with that, um, it doesn't strike me that Arteta knows what his best team is. You were talking to me just before about when you came to the... Uh, sorry, when Ian Wright came to the Arsenal and George Graham basically came to you and said, now it's going to be harder for you to yeah. get in the team. That was just George. I mean, obviously, it's tough on you as a player. But, but I was just... the young one. See, this is the difference. I was the young one. I was 21 years old. I just won my, uh, my uh, a title mm. in 91. Fantastic. Brilliant. You know, part yes. of a, a fan who's won a title, great. Get injured in preseason and then the club bringing Ian Wright, which is fantastic. And then the manager turns around to me and says, you, play, you two play too similar, but I'm going with Wrighty. So what do I do now? What I had to do, I said to myself, right, I've got to start being a bit more like Alan Smith. Mm. Because if I take it back just before that, when Alan Smith came to the club, Alan Smith is the ultimate team player. Played with Gary Lineker at Leicester, complimented Lineker well. He comes to Arsenal, uh, Alan Smith becomes the main man. He's playing up front with Merson at times and Perry Groves and I think sometimes even Quinney and Charlie Nicholas and stuff. But Alan Smith is the ultimate team player. He can hold it up, he can do everything. Then I get in the team. Now I compliment him because I'm the runner. I can hold it up, but I'm I'm more of the runner. Yeah. Then Ian Wright comes in. And what tends to happen is, because of Wright's personality, Alan Smith's confidence started to diminish. Mm. And Ian Wright, everything started to work through Ian Wright, whereas before it worked through Smudger. Now Ian Wright's getting all the opportunities. Smudger's doing all the hold-up work, not scoring anywhere near as many goals. His confidence suffers. So now that's an opportunity for me. So as I'm watching, I'm thinking, the only person really I could really look to, to change is Alan Smith because Wright is scoring goals. So I get on the training ground. I'm knocking George's door. I get on the training ground. I'm asking uh, Pat Rice, Stuart Houston, Jordy Armstrong, you know, help me become a better player. They oblige, no, no problem. And it all culminated. I don't know if you remember the Sheffield Wednesday game at, at, at Highbury. 7-1. The 7-1 game where it was 1-1 with 20 minutes to go. I came on for Smudger and within that 20 minutes, we scored six goals. Yeah. And if we'd, have been, if we'd have been played together before then, I think four weeks before then, we would have won the title because I think we scored 92 goals um, we went on a tear. We ripped everyone, beat Liverpool 4-0. We were ripping everybody to bits. But George Graham didn't see that until I got on there and he realised, wow, you, you, you've, you've improved. And that's that's how this, this how, that's how this game goes. But what was interesting about that was that you improved partly because you were, you were not demoted, but you were told, right, you're not first choice and you went on the training ground. Can you see, I mean, I'm opening this up, can you see the guys that we've got now doing the same thing? If you said to Lacazette, you're not in the team for a while, I'm going to play Pepe and Martinelli and, and, and Aubameyang, do you think that Alexandre Lacazette would do the work? I mean, I think, I'd like to think he would. Yeah, but I think he probably needs being told to do it. I think things are a bit different now and environmentally things are different in that nowadays you're surrounded by an entourage of your own people who often will sort of tell you how good you are or tell you what you know what they what they think you ought to hear rather than necessarily giving you 
the really great advice. Mm. Um, and maybe, you know, you, in your day, I think you probably can just come up with stuff yourself and ask for help. I don't think that it's the same sort of environment nowadays for a player. Do you know, uh, Amy, I think what's really important here is Mikel Arteta and his staff. Because maybe back in the day, the players took probably more control of their careers like that because we didn't have the entourages around. We needed the coaches a bit more. So, But with the coaching staff that's coming now, I think Mikel Arteta has a certain way he wants the game to be played. Now, if it's not being played that way, he's got to get on the training pitch and he's got to get people into position. This is what I want from you. He's got to do those drills to make sure it's clockwork in the player's head. I believe he's doing that defensively right yes. now. Mm. I believe he's doing that because we're keeping clean sheets, which is great. And it's the same players who were atrocious we're getting clean sheets from. So something's improved. But, you know, it's so difficult to connect defence and attack because it's a transition. It's easy to stop the opposition, but once that transition starts, what, hap what tends to happen is we get to midfield and then it slows down. And the opposition all get banked up again. It's difficult to break them down. The yeah. number of times that happened yesterday. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking of the two chances Aubameyang had where he sort of went through on goal. One was from a pass from David Luiz at centre-back. And the other one was from Granit Xhaka, who was about that deep as well. So the actual chances where we got beyond the Burnley defence, they didn't come through the midfield. Which I think raises questions about you know what we're doing in, in the centre of the park, as Amy said earlier. We've talked about Mesut Ozil, haven't we? And and maybe there's the link there, really, that he's in in terms of what he's meant to do. Um, he's just not creating enough. No, it is a fascinating thing when you look at Mesut Ozil and you just think, you know, six months ago at the beginning of the season, he was pretty much, you know, he was not involved, um, and he was told by the club more or less. It was a, it was you know Unai Emery turned around and said it was a club strategic decision to have him out of the squad. That's a pretty strong situation for any player to have. You're not just being dropped by your coach, but you're being told in public to everybody, actually, the club's decision is that we don't really want him in the squad. What? You know, and you're the most expensive uh, um, salaried player. It's a very strange situation. And he then comes back from being virtually isolated to... Emery decides to backtrack and actually, I'll try him. I'll try again with Meza Ozil. Yes. Towards the last few games of, of his time, and he's back involved again because he's a desperate man by then. Then in comes Freddie, and the first thing he does, his first team selection was I'm, I'm, I'm picking Meza uh, uh, away at Norwich and all his buddies, you know, so all the kind of Mustafi Kalasinac kind of gang come back in at the same time. Shaka, yeah. uh, and And he pretty much made it very clear I'm building what I'm doing around the qualities of Meza Ozil. And then Arteta arrives and it's something quite similar. So they've, game after game after game after game, manager after manager in these last few weeks, he's he's always there. Uh, Amy, can I, can I add something to that? Please do. D don't forget that for Freddie's last game, there was no Ozil. And obviously Mikel Arteta came in and he said there's certain things that, you know, you have to do. You have to run, you have to chase, you have to tackle, you have to do all the bits. And we started to see... He was getting a tune out of Mesut Ozil in the first couple of games, I thought. Yeah. Mesut Ozil was putting the work in. But as far as I'm concerned, Mesut Ozil right now reverts to type. He is a luxury player. I don't think Arsenal can afford luxury players, if I'm really honest with you. Here's the reason why. If you're up there at the top of the league and Mesut Ozil's affecting the game, that's one thing. But when we're in 10th, 11th, 12th place... And you need all hands on, on deck. Mesut Ozil just isn't doing it as far as I'm, I'm concerned. And I give it the eye test. I always give it the eye test. I give everybody a chance and I watch as an Arsenal fan. And for me, Mesut Ozil isn't doing what he's supposed to. I think that's a great point. And to be honest, in the Premier League, you look at the very top, Man City, Liverpool... Where are the luxury players in those teams? You know, everybody's working hard and producing. So I just think it's it's not really sustainable. I get it. Arteta came in. He'd never been head coach at a club in his life. He's got these massive characters in the dressing room, people like Ozil, people like Shaka, people like Lacazette, who haven't been happy. He has to get them on side. He has to, yes. if he's going to have any authority in that dressing room. And so he picks them. He puts them in the team. He rehabilitates people like Mustafi, Shaka. 
But now I think we're entering the next stage of that. I think we're entering the next phase where he's got to make decisions. He's given people enough rope now. But now he needs to make some calls and say, you know, is it going to be Ozil? Is it going to be Pepe? And Kev talks about Pepe. I mean, Arsenal need to invest time in Pepe. They've invested a lot of money in him. But you're never going to get return on that unless you play him. And in 18 months, two years' time, he's probably the only guy in that attack who's likely to be here still. So sooner or later, you've got to you know, stick with him and give him a good go. Look, for me, when Mesut Ozil first came into the club, he was affecting games for Germany, was affecting games for Real Madrid. Everybody was excited. Arsene Wenger brought him in. That type of player needs a, needs a balance. He needs a platform to, in order to, to get the best out of him. I think... At the time, Arsene Wenger got it wrong in not having that defensive midfielder mm. behind Meza Ozil yes. to give him that freedom. And as Arsenal fans, we've been crying out for that for so many years. We haven't really had that since really Gilberto. Gilberto was the enforcer back there. Yeah. If Meza Ozil played with Gilberto for a good number of years, I think Meza Ozil would have kicked on because... He wouldn't have had to do a lot of the dirty work. Gilbert would have said, listen, you just stay there. I'll track this run. As soon as I win it, you go and do the business. But that wasn't in place. Mesut Ozil had Sanchez. Two great, great players used to link up fantastic. But we always used to get done in the big games or games that really mattered because we got exposed because they could get at our back for so easy. And they weren't good on the transition. When we lost it, we weren't so good with Mesut Ozil in the team. Now, fast forward to now, Mesut Ozil's a bit older. He's, he's actually slowing the Arsenal game down a lot more. Yes. And if anybody watches, you've got to liken it to, you look at other players who play in the same position. They're picking the ball up and they're being very direct because that number 10 position or that so-called luxury creator has to keep the back four or defence unbalanced. But you only do that by attacking them. Forward passes. Forward passes, running with the ball. Mm. You know, that, that vision of even just getting your head up and looking forward, that unbalances the defence. But what Mesut Ozil does, Mesut Ozil tends to play safer. He does play some certain balls, but I don't think he's got that zip anymore. He hasn't got that energy. And it, it, that's what it needs in that position. For Arsenal to do anything, uh, you know, I look at him, I look at Kevin De Bruyne. Kevin De Bruyne picks the ball up. He's going. There's no messing around. <laughs> Jack Grealish, he's another one. Picks the ball up and he's, he's going. You know, they're the, they're the types. Madison, even at Leicester, he picks it up and he goes. Mm. That, that position now is not a luxury position. That is a grafting position. Well, what's interesting is that I actually took the trouble to go and watch the highlights of Ozil's, oh, I think, best season when he was um, absolutely outstanding. It was maybe even player of the year in, in 20. 15, 16, um, the season that Arsenal uh, perhaps could have won the league but ended up going to Leicester. Yes. Um, but we're in a strong position with that Sanchez, Ozil, probably both being at their peak at the same sort of time, leading the leading the team. And you watch the, the, not just the amount of, of goals and chances that he created, but the way he created them with a total diversity, lots of different types of thing. And he was doing exactly what you're describing, Kevin. At that peak point of his career, he's never been a, a fast or dynamic player, but he had that speed of thought and he had that kind of almost determination to affect the game, like I'm going to make the difference here, that he would get the ball and he would do something positive with it really quickly. And that's what's been lost. I don't know how he gets that back. I mean, he's not ancient. He, he shouldn't really be that much on the on the physical wane yet. Um, but it's just it, the contrast between the way he plays now and the way he played then is really extreme when you actually go back and you watch him at his best. Well, I think I think our producer Tao made a very good point about the fact that uh, the the ex players who we talked to, Lee Dixon, yourself, they just don't fancy him at this point. They really don't, and it's uh, it's a conundrum. Arteta knows. Do you think? I'm telling you, he knows. Uh, James, you wrote a piece mm. about uh, Arsenal striking options. Mm. Uh, and one of the things you wrote, the thing that really stood out for me was about the ruthlessness or, or perhaps lack of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, we mentioned this before uh, when we were chatting in the first half. 
but about it's not just about ruthlessness uh, on the pitch in terms of finishing chances. It's about Mikel Arteta going, you and you, you're the number one strikers. The rest of you, you have to work hard and show me that I'm wrong. Yeah, exactly. There doesn't seem to be enough of that. It, it, just as, as Kevin did when Ian Wright came in, I think if you set a benchmark and you say, this is the standard, these are my guys, this is the way I want to play, and it's down to the rest of you to change my mind. And I appreciate it's difficult to do that when these guys are big stars with big egos, but that is what Mikel Arteta's taken on. You know, that's what the job of management is. They've all got big egos now, but you know what? As you say, Mikel Arteta is the manager. Yeah. Do the job of the manager. Pick the best 11 with the best balance and put them out there. Problem is balance. It's imbalanced mm. right now. Playing strikers out wide, you know, sometimes you can get away with, but you need specialists. You need wide guys who are going to beat the fullback. Soon as somebody beats the fullback, the defence is compromised. So strikers are going to get easier chances. That's why earlier on in the season where players get down the wide, get down the wing, Bellerin or whatever, and start cutting balls back, Strikers score easy goals that way, mm. but we haven't really been doing that of late. Do you think that playing up front too is a possibility? I mean, it's not something a lot of clubs do nowadays. Do you think that it's, you know, has have Arsenal got the personnel that can do that? That can. I I, I think so. I think to get the best out of Lacazette and uh, and Aubameyang, I think you have to play them as a as a front two. And and don't get it don't get it wrong, Amy. It's not just they're going to be stuck up there together mm. because you never actually play fully like that. You always play kind of one off or one going longer. So there's always a dovetail. So Lacazette can play off Aubameyang if so wish, but you've got to want to do it. I mean, one of the other things you said in this piece was about the number of shots that, yeah. that we've had. I mean, the fewest in the Premier League aside from Sheffield United and Crystal Palace. Since Arteta came in, yeah. But but it's interesting because if you look back at Unai Emery's reign, there were kind of 25 shots on each team. You know, it was chaotic games. <laughs> Watford in one half. I think yeah, was, I think yeah. they did. And so, you know, Arteta's looked to make Arsenal more solid, more structured. And he has done. And he has done that. Yeah. There's just been a bit of a trade-off. And, you know, the second part of the job now is to retain that but get us more adventurous, more exciting going forward. Uh, Amy, your piece that you wrote uh, the other day about Pablo Mari. Now, I don't know a huge amount about Pablo Mari. Nor do I. Do you know, well, it's, it's just <laughs> enough. If Pablo Mari walked in right now, I'd go, who are you? And he'd go, I'm, I'm your new centre-half. Uh, I mean, well, what do you know about him? I mean, I, I, this is a guy that is going to be turning out for Arsenal. In, in the piece, you were talking about whether he can step up into that role and partner maybe Saliba next season. All right, I'll be honest here, OK? Uh, so the truth is, I got a call from the office saying, can you write a piece about Pablo Mari? And I thought, oh, God. Uh, and I said, you know what? I, I really don't know more about him than the average layman. Like, you know, what do you want me to write? And it's one of those where, as a writer, you go away and think, what can I do with this? And, it, you know, after sort of thinking about it and talking about it, they, what I came to a conclusion of was, in a way, Mari wasn't wasn't really the essence of the story because he's an on-loan, yes. uh, low-cost centre-back who has some qualities, I'm sure, you know, can be useful. And But he seems probably to be in the similar kind of bracket of most of the Arsenal centre-back options that they've got at the moment. I mean, you, you know, I don't think anybody's expecting an absolute potential superstar to come and walk through the door, although it would be amazing if that was the case. Get what you pay for. But basically, Arsenal haven't really invested in, you know, a kind of knockout centre-back who's of the stature to dominate, to organise. You know, you've got... To, there Virgil, are not. First of all, there are not that many of them Virgil around. You Van say Virgil Dijk. van Dijk. But who else is there? There's not millions and they cost an absolute fortune. So... What I, what I think is interesting is that if you kind of go along the, too far down the line of who is Pablo Mari and what's he going to bring, well, that's kind of one conversation. But the real conversation is when Arsenal are going to start getting serious about their centre-backs. And potentially they did that last summer by buying Saliba. Because Saliba from Saint-Étienne, who's 18 still, very, very young, massive. Everything you see and hear about him is of a young centre-half with phenomenal attributes huge physicality, leadership qualities, a kind of calmness and composure, the ability to organise even though he's so young. And I think that, you know, Arsenal can't spend nine, 80, 90 million pounds on a on a, a ready centre-back with all those qualities. So they're trying to get someone at a, a point where they're still viable. And, and you're, you're gambling slightly, but if it comes off, then you've got yourself a player of that calibre um, and those qualities who can 
with a bit of luck. I'm not trying to put too much pressure on the guy, but it's the only way that Arsenal can try and get one of those centre-backs. But Kev, here's the thing, right? When you were playing, you're up against Steve Bold in training. You're up against Tony Adams and Lee Dixon. Hang on, Nigel Steve Bold was up against him. Get this right. <laughs> Steve Bold told a story about when he turned up from Stoke and, uh, and George Graham said... You know, right, your first few weeks, you want to get used to things, you're playing against Kevin Campbell every day in training. He was <laughs> and he was like, Who, who's Kevin Campbell? The lads are saying, you're going to meet Rambo, don't worry about that. But, the, but it was it was, it was was good initiation for the intensity of what Arsenal done at the time. That's the point. That's the point. And, and right now, do you think there's enough intensity and, and enough pressure on the forwards in training up against the defenders we've got in order for it to make a difference? No, I think, it's it's different. Right now, it's different. Remember, the intensity's just come back into the club with Arteta. Yes. Mm. And and that's why the defence are improving. But every day in training was war <laughs> under George Graham. Yes. Every day in training was war. There was always knocks and bruises and and scraps going on because we <laughs> trained like we played. We, we really did. We trained like we played. The problem Arteta has is the personnel he's got. Mm. Yeah. I think, really think the personnel he's got, he's, he has to make it work, but they've never really gone big on a centre-half. Never really done it. The move for Saliba, I think, is a really good one because, you know, even in France, they're calling him the next Raphael Varane. Mm. And if he's, if he's half as good a player as Raphael Varane is, we've got some player. Yeah. But our problem has always been, recently, we lack speed. Anybody with a bit of pace is going to cause us problems. But this Saliba can run. Yeah, I went to watch him, actually, in St Etienne. And uh, the first thing you notice about him is what a big guy he is. For, for a teenager, it's not, that he's t- it's not just that he's tall. He's six foot three, six foot four. But he's filled out. He's a broad guy. He's got a really commanding presence. He's had a few injury problems this season. He's been over here twice, I think, to be seen at Colney. So they're keeping in check on him, making sure that he's all right was physically. Wasn't it a game as well, James? Yeah, yeah. Was that a Watford over, game? I yeah, think. he came over to a game. <laughs> yeah, it was at the Watford game, yeah. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's he's very much an Arsenal player. He's an Arsenal player on loan at St Etienne and they are keeping close tabs on him. He, he's been in excellent form and he makes a massive difference to, to their team. You know, if you look at their win percentage with him and without him, he's been a massive figure there. So, I, I, I've got high hopes for him. I would just say it's interesting, you know, we don't spend a lot of money on centre-halves. The, the obvious one is Mustafi that we did spend money on. But one that we spent no transfer fee on, but a huge amount of wages, of course, is Sol Campbell. And he was a transformative signing in that team when he arrived because we were losing a generation of defenders who were towards yeah. the end of their careers. And Campbell was this massive figure who sort of pulled that back four together and, you know, remodelled it in his image, essentially. And what it would be like to have a player like that, let's say, as a, as a mentor for someone like Saliba, you know, I know it's easier said than done, but God, we miss someone like that. And we played a little bit with the hand, uh, Kev, just you being here, I can't possibly not ask you about some of the best old days. Um, two in particular, two of my favourite ever nights uh, as an Arsenal fan. Uh, obviously, Anfield 89 is very close to my heart and I'd love to hear your version of events that night behind the goal in your club suit. And um, uh, Palmer, the Cup Winners' Cup uh, final of 94, and I still find it unbelievable that a club of Arsenal stature has won so few European trophies considering they've actually been in quite a few finals. And that was a, a very, very memorable and wonderful occasion. So, over to yeah, you. Yeah, I'm going to go for the Palmer one first <laughs> uh, because the... Um, 89 one is, is is quite emotional for it's going to be emotional for us because um, I spent most of the day the whole day really with Dave Rollcastle so the Palmer game we, we we actually obviously we get out to, to Denmark and when older family and friends and dignitaries from the club are flying out but we're training at the stadium first in Copenhagen and after we finish training we're getting our boots off and stuff and Palmer team turn up and they're just filtering onto the pitch. And George Graham and, and, and Stuart and the staff are there to speak with Nevio Scala and their stuff. And I'm thinking, they don't even speak Italian, you know, what's going on? So we leave them to it. Anyway, we get in the dressing room and this is the way George Graham, his, his brain was. So he gets in the dressing room and, and we're all changed. He goes, lads, he said, you won't believe it. He said, how much them, their players are on a man to win, to beat you? <laughs> So we're like, how much are they on? Like, you know, and I think he said they're, they're on a hundred grand a man. 
And we looked at each other. We said, you know, out of spite, we've got to make sure they don't get 100,000. You know, out of spite. <laughs> but the psyche, remember, we had Noe and Wright. There was a load of our players um, not playing. I think the midfield at the time. Jensen was out. Wasn't um, Jensen was out as well. There was, Ian Selly was in there. Yeah. Paul Davis. You had um, myself in there. You Stevie had Morrow. Morris, Stevie Morrow play. So you had so many homegrown players. Alan Smith was up top on his own. You know, against this high-powered Palmer team. Asprea, Brolin. Uh, there was another one. Zola. Zola. They had um, Sensini at the back, Benarivo. They were a, a, they were a proper team. So we said, out of spite, we've got to make sure we don't <laughs> lose this. You know? So, so, you know, you start the game and I think um, a couple of the, the players had injections. I think Dave Seaman had done his ribs. He had a couple of injections. I had a couple of injections in my, my big toe in order to play. Paul Dickoff, funny enough, had just come back from loan and he found himself on the bench. Wow. We knew they're going to have a lot more of the ball, but it didn't matter to us because we knew certain patterns of play that we're going to have, things are going to break. And Anasmith scored a worldie, held on for dear life. We, we battled hard. Obviously, ended up winning the game. The scenes were unbelievable. Georgie Graham's magic hat. That yeah, was that night, wasn't it? <laughs> exactly. You know, it was. It really was an unbelievable experience. You know, I think the the only other uh, trophy we've won is the Fairs Cup mm. in Europe. So to to be a player and be part of a European adventure like that, Amy was was sensational for for us. And then we get in the dressing room and. George Graham, you know, turns around and says, they're not actually on Andrew Grand, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> who cares now, Gaffer? You know, who Doesn't cares? Matter. It was, but that was the psychology. He wanted to put a little bit, he always said, you know, it, fans don't want to know losers. They want to know winners. And if you're playing for Arsenal, you've got to win the game. And that really was a, a massive tick in the box for George and, and that squad to do something in Europe. Just as well, my lucky beads were repaired, right? Let's be yeah. honest. That's right. It was all, all about the beads. I mean, <laughs> what made a difference? It was all about the beads. So, Kev, I mean, that was a, a spectacular memory. Um, but '89, just just take us back to your experience of that day. Well, uh, I'm a we're South London boys. Myself and Dave Rowcastle. Uh, I lived in Brixton. Dave Rowcastle's uh, wife, or wife at the time, girlfriend at the time, lived in Brixton. So Rocky said, "Look, Kev, I'm going to be at Janet's." I'll pick you up at Brixton Town Hall at five o'clock. This is the Friday morning of that night game. Five o'clock. Five o'clock in the morning. So there I am, five to five at Brixton Town Hall. Got me tracksuit. Rocky picks me up. We get up to the to, to Highbury, parks his car. We, me and Rocky are doing the skips with Tony Donnelly. So we're loading the, the coach. <laughs> so we go up to London Colney. All the other lads are there, Rodders and all the boys are there. Cars parked up, the manager. We're all there, so all of us load on. Myself, Dave Villier, Alan Miller, and a few other young players who were part of the squad, but obviously not not played. So we all went up together. And George Graham put on the 1970 uh, FA Cup final, where he reckons he got a touch. 71. 70, 71, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he reckons he got a touch. And for 45 minutes on the journey up there, we re it was the old video. So we was rewinding, <laughs> pressing, can you see my touch? And everyone's like, no, you didn't get a touch, Gaffer. He said, look, I did. He kept rewinding. So it was good banter. Kev, you're behind the goal, right? And yeah. am I right in thinking that you and a few of the boys and Niall Quinn and Brian Marwood, who were there too, are thinking we've got to get back to the dressing room here? Well, yeah, because what, what happened was... We're there and we know we've got, to, we've got to make our way through the gate and back round the pitch. Right. So that's what we do. I think it's with about five minutes to go or whatever. Whatever time it was. We, we, we go round to the side and we're kind of standing in the tunnel because the tunnel went down. We're standing at the side or like crouching down so people could see behind us. And then John Barnes starts going on Amazing the Corner. Obviously, Kevin Richardson took the ball off him. Ball goes back to Lukic. Lukic to Dixon. Dixon to Smith. And I don't know if you've ever seen the footage. When Michael Thomas scores, you see kind of a blurry legs <laughs> come into picture on the left-hand side of the picture. Well, that was me. But I was grabbed by the police because I'd lost it. <laughs> this is the honest-to-God truth. I absolutely lost it. So... 
when it, I was getting up and then as the ball hit the back of the net, I made a beeline to run onto the pitch. <laughs> but the police grabbed me and it was Pat Rice and all the staff who had to say, no, he's, he's an Arsenal player as well because I didn't have the blazer and flannels we were, uh, you know, at the time. Well, I had a suit on, but I didn't have the blazer and flannels. So I didn't look like an Arsenal. I just looked like some punter who was running on the pitch. <laughs> so they grabbed me and it was like, no, you can't run on the pitch. I was like, lost my... I was going crazy. Obviously, ended up winning it. Got to say, the Liverpool fans on the day were were amazing. They clapped, they clapped Arsenal. Yeah, you know, after the game in the dressing room, George Graham, he was uh, he was the coolest man in school. He was he was <laughs> unbelievable. And then the fun starts. You know, you get on the bus and you see the Liverpool fans crying. We're going down the East Lanks Road, and you're seeing the Ever there's a big Everton pub on the left hand side. They're doing the conga down the East Lanks. <laughs> <laughs> clapping, <laughs> clapping the Arsenal bus, you know. Everyone's drinking and having a good time, and then the bus gets stopped by police. So the bottles of brandy are being hidden, and the beers are being put away, and stuff like that. George Graham, you could barely stand up, I tell you. Um, we've got to stop you here because we've got to clear the roads. This pandemonium in the roads going down to Southgate because we're going to the Winners Club. You're right, yeah. Amy. So anyway, they clear the roads fine. They get down, and it's it's pandemonium. We get into the winners' club and fans are taking lads' jackets off and ties off and everything like that. Get there, leave there about five o'clock on the bus. The driver Frank, Tony Donnelly, Rocky, and myself, because we're the only ones going in, going to the ground. So we goes to the ground, parks up. Rocky's title is is a title winner now. We get back to the ground, so we're doing the skips. Doing all the skips, bringing all the all the skips in, all the rubbish and everything. We're bringing it all into the ground. Anyway, there's a lad asleep on the stairs. So Rocky goes, should we wake him up and find out what his night was like? So I said, yeah, Rocky, let's do that. So we nudge him and we say, you know, do you want a beer? And he's like, Rocky, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So that Rocky, this is this is why Rocky meant so much to everybody. You know, he he took the time to sit down with the guy on the step and say, what was your night like? And he was in the Arsenal Tavern and he was doing this and, you know, he rang, he's, he's not been home yet. We said, we gathered that, you know, you've not been home. <laughs> so he said, I'm not going home all weekend. He said, I've got to enjoy it. He said, I can't believe it. So we took him into the marble halls and, you know, was talking to him and then he left and then me and Rocky got a taxi back to Brixton. That's why Rocky means so much to so many Arsenal fans. He was, he was like the glue in the dressing room. He really was. He was such a fantastic man. So sad. So sad. Really sad. You made me cry, Kev. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was know, beautiful. That, that was, was really, really beautiful. Amazing. Thank Lovely you. Lovely to hear that. Right. Um, uh, we're going to go. I'm, I'm a bit stunned by that story. That is fantastic. Um, let's have a song, by the way, before we go, because what we normally do, Kev, at the end of the uh, podcast, we choose a song. Very difficult, I think, to choose a song that reflects a nil-nil draw away at Burnley. <laughs> I was trying to think of something that had boo in Booing it. Booing in it. it. They love a boo, don't they? Have we got any songs? Well, Maybe. I have got a song, and it's in honour of our special guest because he's got a big birthday coming up. Our super Kev, I think. Well, what's the best birthday song? Altered Images? Happy birthday. Happy birthday, happy birthday. I don't mind Stevie Wonder oh, happy birthday right. to you you know happy yeah. birthday to oh whatever one of them one of them uh, Kevin great to have you here thank Thanks you very much 50 tomorrow in. happy birthday mate happy, happy birthday, birthday. Thank you. Uh, Amy James been a pleasure uh, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Teo as well for producing uh, the show. Uh, this has been Handbrake Off for the Athletic, the Arsenal podcast. Thanks for listening. 